Some people are funny, and some people are funny while they're making the world a better place. That would be Kristen Becker. Um, Kristen, how would I introduce you today other than to say, ladies and gentlemen, Kristen Becker? I got to be honest with you. We've been trying to figure that out lately. We're not sure where I fit. I think it's real interesting that you've uh, kind of expanded, I think, how you see yourself now. Just in the time I've known you, which is like maybe four or five years, I've watched you go through this evolution. And, you know, I, I didn't know you before, so I, I'm pretty sure you've always been a pretty sensitive human being. Although I would also say you're probably not real happy about that. You'd probably <laughs> I think I was too drunk to notice (laughs) (laughs) whether I was sensitive or whether I cared. I think it can be really hard to be a really emotionally open and sensitive person. You know, you got that edgy side to you. You got that tough side. And I really, that makes you loads of fun. But I think just by the nature of your starting summer of SAS, I was so overwhelmed with how incredibly generous and thoughtful that was for you. It became something bigger than I expected it to be of just like kind of figuring out how I hand it off and like get it funded. So let's start with where did the concept of Summer of Sass come from? Was it your own experience? It was common sense, I think, and location. I live in a place that there was a lot of talk about summer workforce and there being visa issues. You know, I have the Loose in the Bible Belt tour. We were on tour in Louisiana and I was in Shreveport where I went to high school. I had just been back for my 20th high school reunion. And in the Shreveport Times, there was an article written about Teddy, who became one of the first years. And it was about how high school was really rough for queer kids in Shreveport. And I knew that as a, as a Southern queer, I had never heard about P-Town until I was like 30. And then it was the added bonus of like, wow, I've come back 20 years later and this kid is telling my story. Right. And it was like, OK, so I see a simple solution to this. And what do I do? And it just I don't know. I sometimes I have ideas that I knew that I needed to drive it forward enough so that people could see that it could run. Does that make sense? Like I had to proof of concept it and we had to make sure that it could work because I am not a not for profit manager. I'm a creative that generates a lot of ideas and they seem to have humanitarian angles these days. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Funny how that's happened. <laughs> did yeah. you start that as a as a GoFundMe? Yeah, yeah. We yeah, we did a GoFundMe and the first year and we raised a couple of thousand dollars. How many kids have you brought up? Uh we had three the first I would say, so we had a couple that came and left the second season. I can say confidently that we have positively affected the lives of five young adults in the last two years and transformed their lives. Even just to be in a, in a climate that feels safe, let alone comfortable, let alone I can absolutely be myself without thinking about it twice. There are so many aspects to just that freedom of authenticity that are game changers. And and that I'm learning and that, I mean, the things I've learned about myself in these two years, let alone what, what these kids have learned, but it's really like give them a chance to figure out who and what they are without everyone staring. In uh, an area where you are surrounded by a lot of conforming people, you stick out when you get put into a place like P-Town where literally like your freak game has to be pretty high. <laughs> that is key. Where you're coming to is this population and you need to be okay with that. I feel like at, from 18 to 20, I believe in fluidity. I believe in spectrums. I believe that 
that things come and go. And when people have never been afforded the opportunity of that space to like really explore, then they don't really know, right? And there is so much from society, and I think even more right now, that would instill kind of a fear of exploring things and feeling comfortable with it. Yeah, I mean, the safe spaces are few and far between right now, you know, for authenticity. (laughs) What was it like for you, Kristen? At what point did you realize that you weren't going to conform to the standard that everybody is sold when they're growing up? Well, I mean, I know that when I was five years old ish, when all the other girls I knew were getting a Barbie big wheel that I very much wanted. I wanted a chips motorcycle because I wanted to be Pacharella <laughs> and I got it. I think that was probably step one <laughs> for me is the chips motorcycle story. And then also like, you know, I was born in Buffalo, New York, and then I moved to Louisiana when I was 10. So I was already given a really good example of people can be different ways and they will be remarkably different. Right. And so I went back and forth between the cultures yeah. and I'm super thankful for it because I'm in this position right now to be a, a bridge builder between very different cultures that I know personally And I know that my quote unquote elitist Yankee friends and my quote unquote ignorant redneck friends are all awesome. It's just you can't always say heteronormative to Bubba. I could be wrong. Maybe it's just that you're so comfortable in your own skin now. But I don't know how difficult the time you had if if you just went, look, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. Yeah. I mean, when I first started when I first started comedy, I was pretty sure that I was never going to tell anybody I was gay on stage. Oh, really? That was my brilliant plan. That that didn't last so long, huh? In my head, I was like, oh, well, I'm not a gay comedian. I'm a comedian who happens to be a lesbian. And what does that have to do with the price of apples? You know what I mean? And then I realized that audiences spent the first 45 seconds to a minute of my set wondering if I knew I was gay. (laughs) And there was my lesson in authenticity, right? They can smell it on you and stand up expedited that process, you know? And now in the same token, I'm not even sure that translates into personal vulnerability, right? Like, yeah, I'm real. Comedians are really good at being vulnerable in front of 300 people. Have you watched any of Mrs. Maisel? I have. And what do you think? I like it. I think it's great. I think it's, I think it's exactly what comedy entertainment is supposed to be. Do you like it? Oh, I love it. I think it's really great. And I think it's creative. I feel like with the dumbing down of our education system, we've also dumbed down our creative process as indicated by the reboots of everything. Yeah. So like anything that is a new character or concept or I'm into it at this point. It's twice as good because it isn't something you've already seen, even if it's not great, you know. But I wonder about with Mrs. Maisel, though, that, you know, she gets up and she just wings it and she's hilarious. Do you do that? How much of when you get up in front of people to be funny is stuff that you already know is going to be funny? And how much is just like, "Eh, here's what I saw yesterday. It definitely, she definitely had a pretty steep learning curve, right? Like she definitely got her chops quick. But the reality is that the more you've been doing it and the longer you've been doing it, the more likely and the more able you are to take an idea that you had that day and bring the stage. You know, I am not 
right now, currently, because I'm doing the tour and because of the summer program, I don't live in New York City. I'm not on stage eight times a week, right? Those guys will have a thought that day and bring it. And that's the work. That is the work. That's the writing. You have the thought. You think it'll work. And when you've been doing it long enough, you have a good gut instinct on what's going to work. And your voice is a little bit defined, but you don't know until you give it the litmus test and you throw it up on stage. And then you try it again a different way or you punch it up. The art of writing people think doesn't exist in stand-up because the other art of stand-up is making it sound like I never wrote this before. Right. So like you have these two conflicting art forms that you have to be good at. I have to be good at telling the same story over and over again, which in real life I despise. <laughs> Was that like the Beach Boys playing good vibrations for the 10 billionth time? Yeah. People who know me, who know my sets, you know, like if I'm dating someone or they've seen me or they have to travel with me and they... They hear me on stage and they know when I'm getting into material I'm excited to tell again or excited to present because it's newer to me and fresher and it's still in a creative process. Or they know when a new tagline that you never thought of pops on stage. I think Mrs. Maisel is a little bit of a romanticized version of how things go, but it also happens like that every now and again for people if they really commit to going on stage and doing the work. So when did you first realize you were funny? So I wasn't. My sister was really funny. And that's the thing that growing up, when I first started comedy, I used to hate it. Everyone would be like, oh, you're doing comedy? That's weird. Your sister's usually the funny one. But then I saw Mike Myers interview and he was like, oh, no, I'm the least funniest person in my family. He admitted to it. He's like, I am not the funniest person, but I grew up watching the funniest people I know. And I absorbed that timing and absorbed that delivery and that sarcasm and like was a sponge for being surrounded by very funny people. And I think that's definitely a factor. I do remember the first joke that I really got, though. Yeah. Um, It was the Muppets. And it was uh, Ralph, the dog, playing piano. And Kermit comes down. Oh, it's a love song. And all I know is that Kermit is bummed about love. And he comes down to the piano bar. And Ralph says something about him looking kind of sad. And then Ralph's like, I tell you what I do. I go home. I take myself for a walk. And Ralph, the dog saying that he takes himself for a walk. And I remember thinking like, man, that's hilarious. Everyone's like, oh, you must love Fozzie. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm a Ralph, the dog kid. So at what point did you start doing stand up? And what was that like initially? Uh, It's funny because I I was a I was a jock in high school. I was I never did theater. I went to Loyola College Preparatory, Shreveport, Louisiana, Jesuit educated, uh, great high school education. I was terrified of public speaking, but I knew that I really wanted to do comedy. And an ex-girlfriend of mine, God love her, Jamie. She's married with a bunch of kids now. So um, that's how I do it. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Um, She bought me a comedy class for Christmas. I went to the Funny Bone in Buffalo and did my course. I threw up for the 18 hours prior to my first four minute on stage. Like I was so nauseous. And then I got on stage and I did really well. And then I applied to the Humber School of Comedy in Toronto, which she also found for me and said, hey, there's this program here. You should go check it out. And at the time there was, I think maybe like five, 600 applicants and they were taking a hundred every year or something like that. It was a big deal. And it, it still exists, the Humber School of Comedy in Toronto. 
And basically they took the idea of a theater degree and they just geared it towards comedy and comedic arts. So cool. Yeah, it's really cool. Stand up, sketch, improv, acting for television, physical comedy, voice, movement, you know, use your body as a tool. It was a really great experience. I was an international student, so I paid like five times as much as anyone else. Very and nice. so after Very generous. First, <laughs> after my first year, I got offered a gig on the road. So I, I went to the dean and I said, what do you guys think? And they said, we think you're good. We think you're set. You'll learn just as much on the road. Go. I dropped out of comedy school, too. That's what I like to tell <laughs> I'm not made for classrooms. Wow. <laughs> so I know you're doing the tour. Yes. And you started that three years ago, four years ago? Four years ago, okay. yeah. Loosen them by the All right. And tell me how that come about. I had run a comedy club in Buffalo. I don't know. I think that's right around when I met you. You had you had just gotten out of there. I just left the club. Oh, man, was I a depressed, drunk mess. <laughs> so I, I'm shocked you actually like me. I was in a bad place then. Ah, so, you were swell. Uh, so I had written a blog shortly after I met you. I wrote this blog and it was about how I thought Louisiana should be leading the South in the ways of diversity. Right. Like Louisiana is a very unique culture. There's two languages. French and English are official languages of a southern United State, right? right? Yeah. Like in a country that's like, speak English. We're like, uh, yo, Louisiana said French as a backup its whole existence. And so, you know, I kind of went into what made Louisiana special and why it should lead the South in diversity. And then it got published in a few papers. And in the South, it got published in the Shreveport Times and it got published on The Advocate. And it just kind of kind of made its way around the media. And then the Louisiana Democratic Party down there, someone from there reached out and said, hey, Louisiana is putting forth a non-discrimination act. Will you come down and, and testify on behalf of it? Right. Like, will you come before the Louisiana state and use this voice? Because this voice is great. Wow. And I was like, sure. And I needed something to do. I just left the club. I just walked away from about seven years of work building that scene in Buffalo. And so I went on tour in the South. We called it Becker on the Bayou. And I realized in my journeys in the South that what I really needed to validate my queer existence was a straight Christian white guy. Doesn't everybody. <laughs> I can't argue Bible and I don't want to. And yeah. I want to respect everyone's beliefs, but I'm not informed enough mm -hmm. to have a discussion yeah. on your terms. And so I went thinking, man, it would be good if I could have a preacher with me. Like, could I bring someone else with me? It was February in P-Town. So the off season is cold. And I went to the library and I got a DVD called One Punk Under God. And it was Jay Baker. And I tweeted him. And then we emailed back and forth and I convinced him to meet me in Dallas and get in a van with me for three weeks while we toured the South trying to tell gays and Christians they can get in the same room. It was really innovative thinking. Only you could come up with that. Well, let me get this person from the complete other side of the spectrum. And I would imagine being Jimmy Tammy Faye's son, he's got some stuff he's working out his own self. A lot, but he's very honest and open about it. And that's why we work. Like the one thing that Jay and I have said from the get go is we don't ask the other person to tone down. I'm not going to ask him to go easy on the Jesus and he's not going to ask me to go easy on the fisting jokes, right? Like that's what we're doing. We're showing that two people who didn't know each other could share space and practice loving each other. And are you going out again this year? We are going out again this year. Last year, we had a six-person camera crew following us around. So we're working on uh, maybe a documentary. Might even be a, a series thing that we produce ourselves. But Jay actually had a mental emergency before the last tour. And he was hospitalized, which he's speaking freely about. We're very open and honest about mental health is real. And uh, it has to be dealt with. And so he had a, a situation. There was some med change. There's some life changes. And he said, listen, I don't think I can do 12 cities in 12 days right now. It's a lot. 
12 cities in 12 days with location shots and live shows every night. It is an intense marathon. So he had to back out. And so, wow, did that change and expand our message in ways I never knew was going to happen. Because when we started this tour, it was Jay and I trying to get gay folks and Christian folks into the same room and talk to each other. And now we're just trying to get anybody to talk to each other, right? Like, because things have gotten so much worse. And so every town we would go to, we would have a guest comedian. Well, now Jay couldn't be with us. So now I'm looking for guest pastors, right? That was the right move. I realized that it's almost like, you know, you have you have your DIY independent comics. You have your DIY independent pastors too, men and women throughout the South who are trying to speak the truth and be loving that are getting knocked down by their boards and by their churches and by what the establishment is. So it was so interesting for me to see the parallels in what we do. We're all just people up here talking and and using those words to hopefully affect change in a way that feels good. Maybe it feels good because it's heartwarming. Maybe it feels good because it's hilarious. But at the end of the day, it feels good, right? And I would imagine that you have altered some people's thinking. We have altered some people's thinking, and I think sometimes in ways that they didn't even expect. We have young people in the South who don't even know a loving Jesus. They only know hate and fear. And I believe that this tour has brought as many people to Jesus as like, you know, people think, oh, you're promoting homosexuality. I'm like, no, actually, we're doing a lot of good PR for your Jesus people right now because you guys are messing it up. So Jay's okay. Jay's okay. And we just uh, we just went to Buffalo to film some audio and some one-on-one interviews with he and I, because we've never really had a chance to sit down and, and talk together. And um, fun. I mean, at the end of the day, what we're selling is an ex- positive experience of love and acceptance. Mm-hmm. And we're selling it to everybody. And that is what people aren't quote unquote selling these days. They're selling very compartmentalized. This is your box. Yeah. Get in it. And we're saying the only box you have to bring is civil and sane. And that's what we need. We need civil discourse and we need sane spaces. And it doesn't mean you're going to agree. You very well may be challenged. And that is true for myself as a queer person who maybe doesn't want to listen to your Jesus, but I'm going to listen to your Jesus because it is important to you. And I value you as a human being. And now you're going to listen to my gay stuff and you're going to listen because (laughs) you value me as a human being. Right. right. And on the bright side, at least, you know, lesbians exist. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> now, when we first started talking about the summer of sass, you were saying you're handing it over to, to continue so you can move on. The plan is that I'm I'm looking at my exit ramp because I am a big believer in getting out of the way. I recognize that my child has much more potential than I could ever. It's like, I want to send it to somebody like I'm putting it up for adoption to somebody who knows how to get this kid to to do its thing. So my role right now and in this year is to be a, part of it and consult and help. I have a person who I have pegged who has a lot of experience who I think could helm this. And the goal right now is I got to go raise some money. $250,000. It's not a lot, truthfully, to secure this house and to get a salary for an executive director and to do something that will have not only an impact on these kids' life, but an impact on this year-round artist community that has an incredibly aging population. It's priced out of younger kids coming here. So what happens is we're getting a lot of visa workers and those visa workers are sleeping four or five to a room and then they leave when the summer's over, which this will become not an artist's healing space year-round. It will become a place of second home ownership 
and workforce ferried in from Boston. Right. And so that's not who or what this community is. And so that's like a collateral benefit of this summer program. Right. We, yeah. And then the kids who do go back, they've now been shown what better looks like. Like that is the motto. The motto is what better looks like. This town is what better looks like. We always say it gets better. It gets better. It's like, okay, great. But could you just give me a little bit of a clue of how that's going to look? Because right now you're just saying it gets better, you know? Right. And so we're saying this is better. This is you. When you're better, you're going to look like this. And when you come here, this is what a community looks like when it's doing better. There was something I just saw the other day. It's sort of like Kickstarter or GoFundMe. Patreon. Tell What's Patreon? So it is a it's kind of like the NPR for independent artists where people can pledge to support the work that you're doing. And I'm running into a situation where I have so many projects that between, I mean, the tour is going to continue on and the, and the, and the documentary portion of that has its own kind of fundraising thing happening. And summer of SAS is going to have, it's kind of, you know, we're getting some grants, all that kind of stuff, but Mm -hmm. the comedy festival we're putting up and the podcast stuff and like all this other stuff, basically Patreon says, Hey, you're a living, breathing, working artist. And I see it. And I'm a fan of yours. So I'm going to give you $5 a month because I've seen you do this for 20 years. I'm going to trust that you're going to keep doing everything I've been seeing you do. And uh, for my $5 a month, you're going to give me a little extra. And if I give you $10 a month, I'm going to get a little extra and a phone call and a t-shirt. It's having your own personal sponsorship. And it's different from Kickstarter because it isn't funding one particular project. It's funding you, the mastermind, because you do have a lot of stuff going on and it's all good and it's all trying to move the world forward. I hope you get patronage up one side and down the other. But don't be too <laughs> quick to like offer to go cook dinner at people's houses because you never know. <laughs> you know what? It's one of those things where like that's very much me though, right? Thank you for saying that, by the way, because it is something that I've learned that I did have a moment the other day. I was like, you know, you could just work real hard on this writing and just go tell jokes. But I, I don't know how to... I don't know. You got to do something with this life you got, right? Yeah. You know, I watch what you do and I go, look at that girl. Look at her now. On behalf of the universe, like, thanks for your contribution, Kristen Becker. We appreciate it. I appreciate the acknowledgement, universe spokesperson. (laughs) Back to how great I was. What were you just saying about how great I am? I heard something about about how great I was. (laughs) 